David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is the Light Culture Podcast. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis and apparel brand. Glenn E. Friedman has been in the right place at the right time, which means that he was cool enough to be friends with and smart enough to be inspired by seminal scenes on two different coasts that he began to document. From skateboarding with the legendary Dog Down Z-Boys crew that included Tony Alva and Jay Adams, to the early days of the L.A. hardcore punk scene of Black Flag Circle Jerk and the Germs, to New York City during the early days of hip-hop when he ran with Public Enemy, LL Cool J, and the Beastie Boys, all while snapping photos. He shot album covers, worked on movies, and published books like Fuck You Heroes with photos that have become definitive graphic documents that helped cement the importance of these radical subcultures. His contributions to the skateboard scene are considered so significant that he he was inducted into the Skateboarding Hall of Fame as an icon. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much. That's such a lovely introduction. Well, you've done a lot. So what, what was it like to be inducted as an icon? Did you go? Did they have a ceremony? Did you make a speech? Yes, I did. I made a speech, and I think it's, uh, it was one of the first ones that was noted as being too long, maybe. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> uh, I had a great time at the Hall of Fame, and I was inducted in the same year as... Jay Adams and Peggy Oki, two dear friends of mine, and Mark Gonzalez. And it was quite an interesting class of us all to go in together, real rebels. And, uh, and even Black Flag also was inducted with us. It was a great event, and I had a really good time. So what did you say? And yeah, I was very honored. Um, what did I say? Well, I told everyone that skateboarding is where I cut my teeth. You know, a lot of them in that room were all still skateboarders. And that's all they ever did in their life. And that's a great thing. And I became well-known for doing these other things. And I went on to other things, although I never left skateboarding completely. I wanted to express to them and let everyone in the room know that this is where it all happened. And this is what, you know, skateboarding is what runs through my veins and skateboard culture. I was a skateboarder. And for all those people who didn't know why I was getting inducted to the Hall of Fame, I let them know why all I had contributed and how much I loved skateboarding and how great of an activity it is and, and what it meant to my life. Well, skateboarding really shaped your life and attitude more than anything, right? Like attitude about culture, about a society, mainstream. You had found like a group of friends, obviously people you admired, yet they were not very respected, I would, I would imagine, in those days at all. Yeah, it's great the way you phrase what you did. Yeah, I mean, those skateboarders in that era, you know, just being there at that time was really special. And it did shape me, like you said. And I mean, and, and their rebellious attitudes and they weren't necessarily very well liked, but they were respected, just like the gangsters in the neighborhood. People might not like them, but they respect them. They had a certain class, a certain style, a certain power about them that, yeah, that, that needed to be respected. And for me, quite honestly, you know, I was a lot younger. I, was hanging out with these guys, you know, for lack of better, you know, ruffians, you know, I was from the nice side of town. They were from the rougher side of town, but a lot of the skate spots were in my neighborhood. So they would come up to my neighborhood to skate. And that's how I got to know them. And it certainly wasn't snapping. You know, I really feel, felt as a skater and growing up with a very creative mother that I was creating images. I, I was seeing things that 
I didn't see in the magazine. You know, there was Skateboarder Magazine, which was the Bible, which everyone read back then and was, you know, spread the gospel all across the world, really. You know, by 77, it was international and had a million readers. David, as a magazine person, you know, back then, that was huge. It's huge today, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, back in it is again now. But I really felt as though something was missing. And I had a vision. And for some reason, at such a young age, I was able to begin to articulate it onto film. It wasn't just about snapping. It was about being there and feeling it, being a part of it and showing that in the pictures. And I think that's, you know, what got me respect from them and what led the way for where I was going to go for the rest of my life. You said they came into your neighborhood. Was that because of the swimming, of the pools that they were using? It was mostly because of the back, the schoolyards. Oh. The, 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 the embanked schoolyard that were made because the schoolyards had these incredible asphalt banks. It was used to help the drainage through the canyons, really. And that's what, and, and just to dig out and have a flat area for kids to play on. The canyon is going downhill. And this is why all these banks were built. Like the schools were built in the canyons. And so whether it was Kenter Canyon School, Brentwood School, or Paul Revere Junior High School, I actually went to Kenter and to Paul Revere. I was, I mean, skateboarding was always happening in those schools, even in the 60s. There's incredible footage of that stuff. But I went to those schools and these guys would come up from Venice and from Santa Monica and from Mar Vista, Culver City, and they would come up to Brentwood and Santa Monica and, and Pacific Palisade. And that's where the schools were. And, and we had these unique, you know, asphalt wades to ride. And the swimming pools too, of course, because yeah, it was a more affluent neighborhood and there were more pools. So there'd be more empty. So you'd be searching for more empty swimming pools in those neighborhoods too. But in Southern California, there are pools just about everywhere. And do you remember the first time that you were struck by the skating as something special beyond just like an activity? You know, Craig Stesick's stories really gave me a perspective reading them as a 12-year-old that what we were doing was something unique and incredible and culturally significant. Even at 12 years old, I was like, wow, I'm like a part of this history. This is really weird because he's talking about guys that I know. And then just being there at this pool that day or at the schoolyard and seeing what we were doing and knowing that this is not happening anywhere else on the planet. Like, this is just not going on. Like, you know, the boards were built in the neighborhood, you know, or we made our own boards and the equipment was coming from Southern California and, and we were using it and the guys were using it around me. All of us were in ways that no one else was anywhere in, in the world. So it was like really unique. And there was no dad come help you learn how to skateboard. Everyone was doing it on their own, that it was our own thing. You know, I used to go to the schoolyards, you know, when I was 12 years old and just hang out all day with, you know, guys from 10 to 15 to 16 to 17 years old. And we would all just be hanging out, really creating every day what skateboarding would become. And, and I did have a sense at that time that it was unique and that it was special. And part of the reason I started making the pictures is because I wanted everyone else to feel what I was feeling, this independence and this creativity, building something that hadn't been built before. It was exciting. Originality. I mean, this is like the beginning of something that has now become like a global phenomena. You say that it was already popular at, at, at some levels, but I feel like there was something extra added to this, which is what the culture side of it, you know, where we talk about subculture. So just skating, you know, physical activity is not a cult in itself enough to define a culture or subculture. It also needs other elements, photography, art, music. 
You're 100% correct. As a culture, again, you know, Craig's stories kind of put it in a place. But the fact that we also had mixing of cultures, different kinds of kids all doing it together and this creativity coming out and us feeling that it was important or that I did enough to want to, you know, portray it and document it and share it with other people and spread this word. Um, it was so exhilarating and so exciting. I think that Craig really had a lot to do with the culture part of it. Honestly, his stories that are in our book, Dogtown, The Legend of the Z-Boys, and that first appeared in Skateboarder Magazine, those stories I really think did help cement it as a cultural phenomenon. It's just the way he articulated and looked at it and his perspective of it in the greater picture, not just like, I'm a baseball player on a diamond and I'm going to throw and I throw the ball fast. It's like, we're skateboarders and this is how we relate to architecture. You know, we're skateboarders and this is how our creativity comes out and what we're doing, whether we're drawing on the boards or how we're thinking of ways to ride in these places that no one has ever been conceived of being used for such a purpose before. And he articulated that on the page. And I think that's really what cemented it as a culture, as opposed to it becoming you know, like I said in the movie, just Little League. Little League, right. And the the movie you alluded to, Dogtown Z-Boys, which you had a, a, a big part in helping to create, right, with a lot of your images. I don't know if you shot any film like uh, for it as well, like video of, of yours. I, I had a lot to do with that film that I didn't get credit for. I was the one who brought Sean Penn in to be the narrator. I picked most of the music that was in the movie. A lot of the trajectory of the film was stuff that I recommended to my old friend, Stacey Peralta. We had talked about it two years before it happened. You know, we talked about what we might do. And I told him that he was crazy because there was no way he was going to be able to make everybody happy. But he had a mission. He wanted to do it. And no one really knew at the time that his mission was to help him maybe get, you know, to do a feature film later. We were all too innocent. And that's why a lot of people had resentment towards him later because they saw that it was really just a stepping stone for him. To many of us, we thought that. And, you know... Most of us are all still friends. I, he's a great guy, but he's just a Hollywood director. And again, they have ways they go about doing things. I mean, we made the movie and I liked my credit. You know, I was a creative consultant and, and I did that with the movie about Doc Ellis. You know, I like being the consultant. I like having that omnibudsman kind of perspective and that people will let me have that kind of input in the film. And certainly in that film, you know, I flew back and forth while they were editing several times over the six months that it was made. Yeah, it's, it's a great film. I'm really proud to be a part of it. And I'm proud of what I did with it. I'm also disappointed in some parts of it. You know, it's not perfect. But yeah, that's a great film. So many people have been inspired by that film in so many different ways, not just skateboarders. It's just such a great story. And it even inspired, I think it brought the level of documentary filmmaking, you know, to a new place. People all of a sudden, when they saw that film, they felt like, God, I could do something like that, you know, because it was pretty raw and the music was is, is very visceral, right? The whole thing. And I think it really made people feel good. So, yeah, I think it inspired a lot of other films as well. Well, it, it really did something for me because I grew up in New York. I'm older than you know most of these people who are much older now and I'm still older <laughs> than they are. And I didn't really know very much about skateboarding. There wasn't really happening in, in Brooklyn, in my neighborhood, uh, certainly at, at any level to compare with what was happening there. And and then, of course, as I got older and, and more involved and I saw the importance of the scene in New York, even in the, in the 90s, Aaron Rose uh, opened his space and he started showing a lot of the California skateboarders and their art. 
in that space, it really mattered, you know, to me and, and others to get an understanding of why are people into skateboard? I live near Tompkins Park, which is, you know, has that skateboard park as part of it. And I used to think endlessly, like, why do they keep doing that? You know, like trying to do those things over and over and over again. I realized that that was just my not having ever been a skateboarder. You know, I could keep shooting baskets forever and never get tired, even though I miss, you know, most of the shots. I still keep trying. So I never made that analogy until now. It's a great analogy. And how gratifying is it when you get that free pointer in as a swish? You know, it's the same thing when guys do their tricks. I mean, when I skated, it wasn't so much about over and over and over repeating the same thing. When we skated when we were younger, you know, in the 70s, there were guys that did that stuff and we kind of called them freestylers. And we looked down on them, to be honest. They were more mechanical and they just do the same things and they practice these tricks. My era of skateboarding was more about style and flow. You know, most people were riding was because the waves were flat, you know, and it's, and, and, it, and you were trying to get that same feeling of just cruising and feeling the air and feeling the excitement, not this mechanical over and over and over doing the tricks. I actually am kind of baffled by it by myself, but your analogy really does make it really good. But the real thing that I do respect is that it's kids you know, concentrating on something and really working towards a goal on their own where no one else is really telling them other than their friends maybe helping them. But I think kids really find something in themselves while they do skateboard, even when it was just cruising. It's really a way to become very self-aware and conscious of just completing a mission, accomplishing something on your own. It's not what anyone else is forcing you to do. It's purely just done by yourself. It's not a teacher telling you to do your homework. It's not a parent telling you to, you know, practice your instrument. Like you get to go out and do it on your own. And that is why I just love it so much. And, and there's a group aspect to it too. You know, the camaraderie that, ever, that skateboarders had. I was telling my girlfriend the other day, I mean, back in 1980, I graduated high school. And I could literally travel anywhere in the world. For my high school graduation, I got to go to London because, you know, punk rock. And I just wanted to go to London and see where things were going on. And I had an aunt there. And all I had to do, and I could do it literally anywhere in the country. And I used to do when I travel, just call up and say, hey, I'm Glenn Friedman. It's like a skate shop, I would call. And I said, hey, is there any spots or anything, you know? And this camaraderie, they all, we all knew each other. They would say, oh my God, you're in our town. Let's go skate. Let's go do something. And, or, and I'm saying that's my personal experience of it. But certainly any skateboarder, even back in the 70s, if you went anywhere in the world, because there was inevitably in most major cities, there was not necessarily a big scene, but there was always someone. It's a brotherhood, you know, and it, it really is. And it's incredible how it's gotten so much more urban as it's grown. And I just, I just love it. It's that freestyle stuff that I'm not really a fan of, but the camaraderie that between young people and how they work together and they hang out together and they socialize in a thing that's not organized by any adults, I think it's just something really special. And the joy when, you know, you land one of those tricks on these kids who are just learning or even more advanced, you know, that look on their face, that moment sure is worth everything. They accomplished something. Yeah. Landed that trick. To their own gratification, not for anyone else's, just for themselves. Beautiful. And uh, you mentioned that punk and how you went to London because you were a fan. Seems like it's it's a kind of a seamless transition from skateboarding to punk rock, but I imagine it wasn't so clear back then. 
It was pretty seam. I mean, in the early 70s, we were listening to Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, Ted Nugent, of all people, you know, was one of our biggest heroes. And uh, it turned out to be a total scumbag. But back then, he had a great energy. And with skateboarding, you know, it wasn't about being mellow. It was about being radical. And the more aggressive and fast and loud the music was, that's what made us feel good. We're all these young people, you know, with a lot of fucking energy. And, and, and the music was a big part of it, whether you're there listening to music or you're going to where you're going to go skate. When we started hearing punk rock, it was just like the next extension of that. It was, ex- it was harder and it was louder and it was faster and it's everything we wanted. So all of a sudden, skaters started getting into punk rock music. You know, it was just a natural thing that happened because where everyone listened to the radio when we were kids and then all or, or to alternative radio and skateboarders by nature are very open people, just like punk rockers. You know, you're you know about culture, you know what's going on in the street. You don't go to your average places to find out your information. People just talk and listen and have their ear to the ground. And so when punk rock started coming up, some of first it met some, you know, resistance, like you know, people say punk is bunk, and there's a great, great meme that I see on the internet. And it says, I used to be punk rock when it was called Hey Faggot. People didn't get it. And, but that's what it was always like being a skateboarder too. They'd say like, well, you're 15 years old. Why are you playing with that toy? Back then in the seventies, it was like, no one thought that people would be 20 years old, still riding their board. Tony Alva, just, I remember on his 21st birthday at the dog bowl, you know, it was like, he was old, you know, he was like, basically retiring and getting ready to start his company, Alpha Skates. But, you know, he's 63 today and still just ripping pools better than he did 40 years ago. It's incredible. Speaking of Alva, I saw this documentary that Vance did that you're in as well, that tells sure. the story of, of his going through everything he did and ending up like clean and sober, energetic and thin as ever, yeah. looking pretty cool. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Yeah. Tony is an incredible story. I known Tony since I was 12. Before I took pictures of him, we knew each other from the schoolyard. I used to sell boards for him at school. You know, he would get boards from his sponsor and he needed money. I would go sell the boards at school for 15 bucks a piece. He'd give them to me for 10 and I'd sell three and I could buy one myself. That's how I got to know him and going to his mom's house and picking up the boards and he'd have all these free skateboard wheels and we'd try and sell them and get money, you know. And then I started taking pictures and my pictures were good. People liked him right away. Stacy said, wow, Glenn, you should send these down to the magazine. You know, Stesic was like, this is what you need to do. And I went and did it. I shot through. I figured out I had to shoot the right kind of film because I was originally just working on a pocket Instamatic. But I'm saying it all started with Tony and Jay, those guys. And, and I, I, I was in the right place. But I put myself there and I worked hard at it. And I loved what I was doing. It was my life. And I think that's why the pictures speak to people. These are things that I love. I'm not a voyeur just taking pictures of other people's shit. I love punk rock. I lived for it. I loved hip hop. I lived for it. It was the next creative thing for me. You know, they all went one right into the other. And to go back to your question about how, you know, from skateboarding to punk rock, the music was energizing our lives. It became our new soundtrack. And then some of the guys even became so enthralled in the music that they stopped skating and they started bands. Because skateboarding kind of was beginning to take a little downturn by 1980 because of the industry. The sport evolved too quickly for its own good. And it was good for the sport, for the activity. It wasn't good for the industry. But people started making bands. And we started going to shows 
because it was more exciting than anything else. And we were all getting older too, you know, guys, now we want to go out to a club at night and you see this music. The first people that were stage diving and slam dancing, those were all skaters. That was, that was skateboard energy coming into the fold of, of this old punk rock in New York, the New York style punk rock. We all love the Ramones first. Then we love the Sex Pistols. And then, you, you know, David, you grew up here. You know, I was in LA at the time, but I was a bi-coastal kid, right? My dad lived here. My mom was in LA. So every summer I was here until my last years in high school, I was here and going there for the summer to California. That's why I was able to be in touch with those scenes so much. But, but like when I would go to the Mug Club on 77 White Street back in 1978, I was kind of scared. When I was standing outside of Max's Canada City, just north of Union Square, I was a little kid. I was a little bit scared. I didn't drink. And there were like drug addicts and artists. It was gnarly. You know, that's why our own generation starting their own bands. Like the stimulators were here in New York. In LA, you had the weirdos were the equivalent to the Ramones, the older group of bands, the Alley Cats, the crowd. But then you had Black Flag and the Circle Jerks and Red Cross. Right. And in DC, you had Minor Threat and, you know, SOA and all these bands that were being inspired by the English stuff and the early New York stuff, which obviously inspired the English stuff. Right. But it was a lot of skaters. You know, fucking Ian Mackay was a skater before he was a punk rocker. Henry Rollins was a skater before he was a punk rocker. I could say the same thing for a lot of guys in bands in California. It was a really great energy. And it was that, that sense of self, that do-it-yourself thing, the individuality that really made it its own culture, right? It wasn't a part of anything else. And I think that's why people such as yourself were attracted to it. You knew it was something special. And the even greater thing about it, which I can't say for a lot of the art scene and a lot of the shit that was going around New York, this shit is fucking pure. A lot of that shit is bullshit. But skateboarding and that what became known as hardcore punk, really fucking pure. No one ever did it for the money. People did it because of their heart. It was what they felt. They didn't think that they were going to get anywhere in life doing it. It was just what they did to express themselves. It's what they needed to do. It was vital. It was vital to me. And that's why I portrayed it. Right. But you weren't, you know, of the same mindset. Your your life was was more comfortable. You had direction. Not that they didn't, but they were throwing everything into the music in a way that, you know, nothing else matters. And a lot of it was just a lot more aggressive or violent on on the stage uh, that turned into violence in the theaters and it turned into violence with the police. I think that the violence is very, very overblown. I don't think either, any of them were a violent scene. I think that there was some violence involved, but I think that that is just all stuff to titillate people. I think it's bullshit. I, I hate it that people even bring up that word when they talk about punk rock and like that horrible, disgusting documentary American hardcore. What a piece of shit that was, you know, didn't do any justice to the scene at all. A couple of people, their voices stand out. And even the people who made it, I know they're good people, but they don't know what the fuck they were talking about. They really did. And everyone has their own perspective, but punk rock, it's yet to be documented fairly in a way that was true to the people who were really there in the beginning, not the first era. The first era has been documented by all those people from Punk Magazine and Legs McNeil and all these people, you know, your generation, pretty authentically. My generation of people, 
we talk about it. Makai talks about it. Rollins talks about it very articulately. Sometimes when he wants to, he's kind of moved on. But for the most part, it's a lot of self-aggrandizing. That music was fucking creative at the time. I mean, the bands that were coming out of LA and DC and New York, well, not New York so much, I have to say. I think New York had its heyday in the 70s. After the 70s, New York punk to me was whack. There was, it really wasn't that good. Bad Brains came up from DC, but I didn't really care for any of the bands, even though I had friends in them in New York. It wasn't creative. It was very, a lot of meatheads. But LA in the early 80s, between the adolescents and Black Flag and all the different bands, you know, so much incredible stuff, you know, Circle Jerks, Social Distortion, even, you know, Youth Brigade. So, so many, you know, people sounded different. And then by 83 or 84, it kind of sounded, everything started kind of sounding the same. It's very generic. And, and, and coincidentally, what happened? I'm starting to listen to a lot more hip hop. I'm getting records sent to me from my friends in Brooklyn, you know, of the Funky Four plus one, the Treacherous Three, you know, the first Enjoy 12 Inches. And this is happening as I just produced Suicidal Tendencies first album. I became a producer. What do you know? You know, after photographing, this was family to me, though, because the singer of Suicidal Tendencies was the younger brother of Jim Muir, the famous Dogtown skater, who looked after me like a little brother when we would go on skate missions and go down to San Diego without my parents knowing. Jim's little brother, Mike, we were at Santa Monica College together, and he gave me this demo. And, you know, and so it's skateboarding to punk rock. So I did that suicidal thing and had great success. Relatively speaking, we weren't looking for it. We just did it. But my energy and the energy of the band and my enthusiasm got them on MTV, got them on Rodney Bingenheimer's radio show because I knew Rodney from doing working at Skateboarder Magazine and Action Now, which became into music, you know, which was a bit ahead of its time. I don't know if you ever knew about that magazine. They made some bad mistakes and that's why I went out of business, but it was very ahead of its time after Skateboarder. There was no industry to support Skateboarder Magazine anymore. So they tried diversifying and having more sports, right? But because they presented them in a very watered down, milk toast way, the magazine just died within a year. You know, if they had handled it like Craig Stessick's articles and showed the cultural significance of these other activities, it could have really been something great and could have stayed around. And people were excited for it. As many skateboarders weren't because it took away from their coverage, but there was no industry to support a glossy magazine. I'm only bringing this up because you're a magazine guy. <laughs> I you was know? a magazine guy. Yeah, now were, I'm a exactly. podcast guy. Now you're a podcast <laughs> guy. But anyways, <laughs> I'm sorry if I thing. go off on, on tangents too far, but I'm just showing you the connection that after that punk rock became a little generic, Black Flag kind of changed their route. People were like doing different things. They were, it just wasn't as vital to me anymore. And, and right at that time, I'm hearing in my ear, it's like that. I or want to talk about that. Soccer MCs. Uh, but just before that, just one final just thing like, about yeah, sure. Penelope Spheris movie, The Decline of Western Civilization. She's a horrible fucking piece of shit. She's an exploiter of people. Okay. That movie has some great live moments, but there's a lot of intelligent, smart people in that scene. And she gave people alcohol and made them look stupid to entertain people. I was at a screening when she screened Suburbia that Roger Gorman gave her money to do. And some guy stood up as soon as the screen was over, some hippie dude stood up and just at the top of his lungs in a small UCLA theater, we were students in a film class, I snuck in. And at the top of his lungs, he yelled, fuck you. <laughs> and he wasn't even a punk rock. He could see the exploitation of 
this director coming in and just taking and taking and taking and making people look like idiots to entertain people. She wanted to show the decline of Western civilization. There were plenty of intelligent people in that punk rock scene. The same creative types of people who care, who love culture. Like you, for but example. She was just an right. exploiter. So all I could say about that film that's good is some of the live footage of Black Flag is great. Live footage of Circle Jerks. Some of the other bands I couldn't give a shit about. They were there because they were on the record label slash that put up the money to make the movie. I'm sorry that I put down both those movies, but like I told you, there's been no definitive movie of punk rock that's told the story properly. It hasn't been done yet. And it's like, they have all these documentaries, but you mix in fucking Nirvana and Iggy Pop with Black Flag and sorry. It's just not. Well, you got to do it, man. You're the guy. I'm working on it, David. I'm working on it. <laughs> okay, cool. Good. So uh, to hip hop now for a second. Yeah, so we, we have an idea of what that sounded like, the L.A. hardcore punk sound that you were very deeply involved with. And then hip hop, totally different, right? This is like black music. Lots of it is sampled from old classics. It's a completely different musical style. Why did you respond so viscerally to those tapes that you were hearing people were sending you? One simple word, David, fucking attitude. They had the same attitude, the same bravado that a lot of punk rock had. And I'm not talking about macho bravado. I'm talking about having something you want to say, you want to say it loud. That's what it was. And I loved it because as a punk rocker, as a skateboarder, I was open to new things. At the time, you know, it's not so much like that now, but skateboarders and punk rockers were very open-minded, very liberal-minded people at the time. And to hear something new like hip-hop was just an extension of that. You know, I used to talk about it back then as being black kids' version of punk rock. Plenty of people called that yeah, now. Yeah, well, sure. But back then, people didn't. Well, I, I could tell you, Africa Bambata did. I heard him say it to me, you know, that this is punk rock. He always identified hip hop with punk rock. I appreciate that. And that's probably why he did that record with John Lydon, right? Could be. But that's what it was to be anyways. It was about the attitude. And, and I also love that it's dynamic. It was just different and new and it was raw. It was almost people doing something, you know, on their own with scratching records, just like inventing something out of nothing or taking the roots of the past, like skateboarding came from surfing. Punk rock came from early rock and roll. Hip hop comes from old records, right? And people wanting to, you know, break beats and people wanting to just rap over that and make their own stuff out of it. A lot of incredible creativity and I was just drawn to it. I just loved it. It was really making me feel good. You know, David, you said something before about, you know, like I wasn't in as desperate a place because of where I happened to grow up. But that's not true at all because every fucking teenager is desperate. It doesn't matter where the fuck you grow up. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. Right? You know what I'm yeah. saying? And, and, and I, I remember being 13, 14 years old and sitting in the back of a truck going to a skate spot with Tony Alva. And he, he articulated that someone was harassing him or something was going on. And, and he talked about meeting these, you know, rich kids or something like that and, and saying, Everyone's got problems. You know, we're just teenagers. And, but he articulated as someone who was like five years older than me, like, doesn't matter where you come from. We've all got our fucking angst as, and our problems. And they're all just as valid. Just, it just comes in different ways. And, 
And this is a teenage Tony Alva, the most self-centered motherfucker in the world at the time. But he was able to recognize that. And that's probably one of the reasons why we've been friends our whole lives. And we could laugh together and hang out together. And, you know, I, he was in New York a couple of years ago. We met over at, you know, Pier 62 Skate Park and took the Crosstown bus back home together, just laughing afterwards. Nice. Two old fucks on the fucking cross <laughs> skateboards. The M14. Yeah, the M14 with skateboards and a camera. I had my camera. I, I got a new lens off of eBay that I wanted to try out, you know, because I was replicating one of my old lenses. And yeah, we got some good shots and had a great time. What about the visual representation of hip hop? So do you remember anything, you know, what you saw visually that excited you about that? What I saw that excited me visually about hip hop was what I was seeing, much like the other things that I had made photographs of, right? In punk rock, I didn't think there were good live photos. People weren't capturing what I was seeing. In skateboarding, people weren't capturing what I was seeing. In hip hop, people were not fucking capturing what I was seeing. They were taking people into a fucking studio. It's street music. You shoot people on the street because that's where the music comes from. You don't take them into a fucking studio. But I understand record labels needed things clear. And this was something that was selling. There were a couple of people that were shooting stuff on the street. And inevitably, those were the greatest photos. But sometimes the quality just wasn't that good. I'm talking about character and quality, composition. It's not documenting to me so much as it's composing and sharing a story and showing people, you know, what the fuck is going on here? I'm not just taking a snapshot. And and what you shoot is with film, right? And you're still devoted to film as opposed to digital. I always shot with film. I still shoot with film. If it's important, I shoot with film. Because here now you're in New York. You're living a different life, have a totally different scene. And the way you work is that you like to immerse yourself in not you like to, but that's who you are. You're attracted to it because that's where you want to be. This is the coolest place. There's the most creativity, interesting people and all of that. Absolutely. So how did that happen? You know, here you come like you're not part of the scene. You're, it's not like L.A. where you knew everyone. The Beastie Boys is how I got closer to hip hop. We had a mutual friend that grew up with Yauk that introduced me to them. And they started making rap records. They came to Los Angeles while I was in college. And remember, I'm still going back and forth all the time between New York and LA because I was in school there and here for my school vacations or vice versa, whatever it was. But by that time, I was still in, I was in college. And the Beastie Boys came out to LA on the Madonna tour and they were right there. They were being managed by Russell who managed Run DMC and everyone else. And the Beastie Boys hadn't put out a record yet. But actually, I'm sorry, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. In 1983, Adam Yauch told me to hang out after a screening of The Great Rock and Roll Swindle at the Roxy Roller Skate Rink. After the screening of The Great Rock and Roll Swindle there on just a little 24-inch TV screen, in the middle of the roller rink, we're all, all these about 30 of us punk rockers were just sitting there seeing this movie for the first time in America because there's no DVDs, no screenings in America. That was it. After the movie, he said, Glenn, you should hang out. These guys are going to come here. And they're going to be breakdancing and stuff. And I never even heard of what breakdancing was yet. You know, they're going to be breaking and it's really going to be a cool scene. You should check this out. And so I stayed. Rocksteady crew shows up and there's a circle and they're in the middle of the roller rink at the Roxy and people are roller skating around them. 
the roller rink is a roller rink. It's not a hip hop venue yet. It's a fucking roller rink. But these guys in the middle of the rink where people aren't riding, they're breakdancing on that nice wooden floor. And that was my introduction to real hip hop. I met Crazy Legs that day. I asked him, I said, do any of you guys skate? Because it seemed a lot like skateboarding. And he pointed to one of the guys. He says, yeah, I think he does over there. Turns out that was Doze Green. I didn't realize until many years later that that was him. You know, I didn't put it all together. And he was a skater from New York. And so there's all these intersecting cultural things that brought me to it. But then the next year or two, the Beastie Boys made that Pookie Cookie Puss record and they got on the Madonna tour. They came out to LA. They didn't know anybody. They came to LA for three days of Madonna dates at the Amp- Universal Amphitheater. And I showed them all over LA. I was the only person they knew in LA. And I was like their guide. And I was being so inspired. I just quit managing suicidal tendencies about six months earlier. And they come into town. And this was just like an all new energy for me. And this was like the hip hop thing. And I was already loving Run DMC. And I was loving a lot of the new music I was hearing. And I was inspired that my friends were making a rap record. So I made photos with them while we were in town. I said, let's just do photos. I just wanted to. I had the energy. I love creating good images, especially when I'm inspired. And I was inspired by them at the time. And we did this photo session over a couple of days while we had off time. We went to Malibu. We went to a couple of the spots. You know, just, we just went to the beach. I was just showing them around Southern California. And then, of course, we did all the prank shots of them with celebrities for the publicity. You know, Bill Adler, whoever it was at Rush Production said they needed a picture of the Beastie Boys with, with Madonna. And so we tried getting the picture and she wouldn't pose with us. She's so self-conscious at the time. She had not yet received her first gold record, but she was about to just only receive her first gold record. She was very self-conscious. She was getting very famous. This is my perspective anyways. And she didn't want people shooting her pictures. She wanted to be in control of it. She wanted everything to look like a beautiful Herb Ritz photo. And she knew a publicity photo wouldn't. She was very short. She was chubby. You know, she had to make her look right. Even when she got her gold record at that party that we all went to later, she held it up in front of her face. She didn't want people to see her. So anyways, we didn't get the photo of the Beastie Boys and Madonna, but we got pictures of them with Gene Simmons, with Billy Idol, with all these other, you know, Rob Lowe, all these silly Hollywood people that were all out to see Madonna. David Lee Roth, Sean Penn was courting Madonna. I got a great shot of them. You know, those shots are just junk. That's just throwaway. We were just doing that as a goof because, you know, I don't shoot paparazzi bullshit. I don't do that. I just did that for them, for the fun of it. We were just fucking having a prank on everybody. But of course, the record company loved it and they wanted all that. And then I had all those great shots of them that I shot with my wide angle lenses and my stuff that I like to do. And Rick Rubin and Russell saw them and they just loved this stuff. They just loved it. And then from that point on, whenever groups came to California, they would hang out with me. And because of my experience with suicidal tendencies and Black Flag and working very close with promoting those groups, I had inroads into you know rock and roll press and I helped all the Def Jam artists get more mainstream press in Los Angeles and on the radios. And then I became like a Def Jam West Coast representative. And, and as a side thing, I would also shoot pictures of these bands. But again, my thing was just keeping it very real with all the photographs to get back to your main point was keeping it very real. And what I saw in the artists, whether it was a toughness or a ruggedness or coolness or a urban thing, you know, just being very black, whatever it was. I was there to accentuate that and to show that personality. And that's what I think was necessary, not just a posed publicity shot, you know, not just a normal shot. It had to show attitude because all my work is all about attitude. All my work is about inspiring rebellion, inspiring people, not just about fucking sitting around. You know, it's not just about 
playing Lottie da music, you know, you could do that too, but it's not about that. It's about kicking people in the fucking ass and waking them up and showing them what the hell is going on. That's what I've been always trying to do. You're known for your uncompromising principle, which I, I think people are hearing coming out of you as well. What is there that you want to point your finger at today? Because it's a different kind of world. It's very hard to find a scene. You're older in the same way. So now that that's not so much a part of your life in, in the same way as it was then, what do you want to shoot? What is it that motivates you today? You know, I don't really shoot that much anymore. I almost don't shoot at all. I work almost exclusively off my archive. You know, I've got a lot of great inspiring images that still inspire people to this day. And I like to show people through my old work, a time that was and a way it was portrayed and great things that were going on and to show people integrity. Because I don't even know if that word exists in the vernacular anymore. I don't think people know what integrity is. People just want to make money. Famous. And, you know, there's no understanding of like, no, we don't want a movie made about us or no we don't want corporate sponsorship for our tour so we could make money it's just it wasn't like that and that's you know i mean hip-hop for example is is a big purveyor of that right i mean they've bought into it more than anybody absolutely but i mean it was always about upward mobility for a lot of people a lot of hip-hop art yeah was true. made for survival true i mean look at i'm 58 years old i mean i don't need to be out in the trenches shooting that stuff I think that's for the responsibility of that generation needs to shoot those kids, people who love it and get a life's kick out of it. I loved what I was doing. When I would go to Union Square to see hip hop shows, you know, or to Latin quarters or to Hotel Amazon, wherever it was. I didn't have my camera with me, by the way, all those times. I was just hanging out because that was my lifestyle, right? People need to portray their lives and to inspire other people. If they are a photographer or an artist, I don't think it's my duty to do it. But the things that inspires me as a 58 year old, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. That's about it. I want to shoot a photo session with her. If you were still at Paper Magazine, I'd say, David, could you please get me a photo session with her? I've been trying to get a photo session with her since before she went to Congress. As soon as she was elected, I've been wanting to shoot a photo of her on a stoop in her neighborhood, you know, because I feel her and I have compassion for her and I love her for how she is trying to change the world like all my friends have always done. And only because she inspires me so much do I want to shoot and make a photograph of her, make a portrait of her, because she inspires me so much. You know, I've shot a couple of people over the last few years. It's very rare, very far few between because I am not as inspired. I am actually quite disappointed at times where I see where we are in the world with this piece of shit in the White House and the, the way people just lie and cheat and steal and they think it's okay and they just get away with it. They're just so ruthless with it. It's really hurting me physically and mentally. And like it is everybody now with COVID and everything else that's going on in the world. It's just like, where are we going? Where is the world going? I thought what well, we've done all these years, punk rock and hip hop. I didn't, I wasn't under an illusion that we changed the world. We didn't change the world, but we certainly added something to it and maybe inspired a lot of people. I don't think there would have been a Barack Obama without an NWA or without a public enemy or Ice-T. Barack Obama, great politician, but their black man would not have been president if it wasn't for hip hop culture. No one before hip hop could have ever told you that there was going to be a black president. No way. I think hip hop culture helped people who didn't understand black culture. I've grown up, my best friend was Native American in first grade in the first fully integrated public school 
in the country or one of the early ones in Englewood, New Jersey, before I moved to California and had black friends my whole life. I understand the culture. I always have. I've always been enamored. But where we move in the future is really up to us. That I just think the culture has, did change some things, but not enough yet. And I just hope we move forward and things get better. And that's all I'm open for. Thank you, Glenn E. Friedman, for your take on everything, all the great work you've done in the past, your fabulous books, which I would recommend to all our listeners to, to check out. And I hope I uh, can see you one day soon, physically. I see you walk around the street. I see you, David, all of the time. All right, my friend. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Light Culture. Thanks again to Burb. And don't forget to listen at shopburb.com forward slash light culture, as well as Apple, Spotify, and other popular podcast platforms. You can also find me on Instagram at David Reporting. 